Now, friends, we've come today to 1 Timothy, and we've come to a new set of epistles. They are written by Paul. There are three of them that belong together, and they are called the pastoral epistles. And the reason that they are called that is because they have to do with local churches. Now, I think that you would find that these pastoral epistles are in contrast, for instance, to the epistle to the Ephesians. There, Paul speaks of the church as the body of believers that's in Christ today, the glorious, wonderful position that the church has. Now, that church, which is invisible, which is made up of all believers that are in the body of Christ, it manifests itself down here upon the earth in local assemblies, that is, in local churches. Now, just to put a steeple on a church and a bell in the steeple and a pulpit down front and a choir law and to sing the doxology doesn't mean it's a local church in the New Testament sense of the word. There are certain identifying features. I have a little book called The Spiritual Fingerprints of the Visible Church, and it must manifest itself in a very definite way down here to meet the requirements and meet all of the definitions of a local church, to be a church of the Lord Jesus. Now, these three epistles written actually to two young preachers, and we'll talk about them as we come to them. And these three young men were part of Paul's fruit. That is, they were led to Christ through the ministry of Paul the Apostle. And he had these men with him as helpers. And this young man, Timothy, and this young man, Titus. And he tells them about the local church. And I personally think that in all three epistles that you're dealing with actually two things. You're dealing with the creed of the church, and then the conduct of the church, the church within, the worship must be right. And without, the church manifests itself in good works. Worship inside, works outside. That's the way the church is to manifest itself. Now, a local church must have certain things. And Paul, in all three epistles, will deal with these very definite things. And actually, instead of saying three, I should say really two, that which is inside, that which is outside. He divides, for instance, First Timothy, and I'll come back to this again. Chapter 1, faith, the faith of the church, its doctrine. Chapter 2, the order of the church. Chapter 3, the officers of the church. Chapter 4, the apostasy that was coming in chapters 5 and 6, duties of the officers. Now, when you get over to 2 Timothy, you see the afflictions. And the second chapter, the church is active. And you see the apostasy and then the allegiance of the church. And in Titus, you have first the order in the church. Again, same thing, the doctrine in chapter 2. And then the good works 
of the church in chapter 3. So it's creed on the inside, conduct on the outside. Within, it's worship. Without, it's good works. Now, the church, to manifest itself in a local assembly, it puts up a building. Now, in Paul's day, they didn't have a building committee. That's one thing they didn't need because they were not building churches. They generally met in homes and, I think, probably in public buildings. We know in Ephesus that Paul apparently rented the school of Tyrannus, a place where there was a school conducted, and Paul apparently used the auditorium during the siesta time each day, and people came in from everywhere to hear him preach. And that could be characterized as a local assembly, and it certainly became a church in Ephesus. And the church, therefore, in order to be a local assembly, there are certain things that must characterize it. It must have a creed. Its doctrine must be accurate, must be right. And Paul says here, and I think that in First Timothy, that there are two verses that set before us the message that's here. In, in the first chapter, verse 3, here's what he says, "...as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that..." Thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, or that they do not teach a different doctrine. And that's pretty important, that the church have the correct doctrine. And that's what we mean when we say a steeple doesn't make a local church by any means. And then in 1 Timothy 3.15, he says again to this young preacher, "...but if I tarry long..." that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, that local church is to be made up of believers who are members of the body of Christ. Now, in order for them to function, they do have to have somebody to sweep the place out. They have to have somebody that will build a fire in a stove, if that's what they have. The first little church that I had, I swept it out some, not all the time. And then on Sunday morning, the first one that got there built a fire in the stove. It was a country church, and the first one there built a fire. I always tried to be a little late, but I say half the time there I built the fire in the stove. Those are things that are essential. And you do need a choir. It's nice to have one, a song leader. It's nice to have officers. In fact, he's going to say it's essential for it to be an orderly church. There must be officers, and they must meet certain requirements, and that the church should function in an orderly manner and manifest itself in the community by its good works. Now, that sounds very idealistic, and unfortunately, today it is idealistic in most places because the local church doesn't always manifest what it should. Now, from these pastoral epistles, there have come today three different types of church government that have been manifested by churches in the past, the great denomination actually never disagreed in the old days on doctrine 
as much as they disagreed on this matter of church government, how the local church is to function. And out of these pastoral epistles, there grew three different forms of government. And you marvel that they could get three forms of government, but they did. And I'll mention them. First of all, that which is known as the Episcopal form of government. That is, where there's one man at the top who is in charge, or there may be several that are at the top. And the Roman Catholic Church calls him the Pope. In other churches, they're called bishops, or the archbishop. The Church of England has that system. And many other denominations have that form of government, an Episcopal form of government where it's run by a man out of the church who's up at the top, or a little group of men at the top. That's the Episcopal form. And then there is what is known as the Presbyterian or representative form of government. The church elects certain men to be officers, elders in the church, and deacons in the church. And church government is in their hands as far as the local church is concerned. But unfortunately, the churches were bound together by an organization above the local church, and that organization could control the local church. And that was another method, and it functioned for many years, and functions today, of course. Then there is the other extreme form, that is, from the Episcopal, there is the congregational form of government. And the congregational form of government, you see it, of course, in the Congregational Church and in the Baptist Church. That is, the people are the ones that make the decision, and they are the ones that actually are in control. The entire church votes on taking in members. The entire church has to vote on everything of the local church. And that is the other extreme from the Episcopal. And you'd say, well, how in the world can they get three forms of government? Well, as we go through, we'll attempt to call attention to that in First Timothy and these other two pastoral epistles. It was the interpretation, actually, of words, the way that they interpreted certain words. Now, the very interesting thing is, in the early days, all three forms of government functioned and seemed to work well. But in recent years, all three forms of government seem to have fallen on evil days. They don't seem to work as they once did. And I hear men that are members of all three forms of government that tell me today that there is the internal strife and internal disorder today and dissension. And what is wrong Immediately, somebody says, well, the system is wrong. And by the way, we have a representative form of government in this country, and it is based on church government. It was patterned after it. You see, the early colonists, they didn't want a king. That's the only form of government they knew, but they had had enough of a king. They did not want an autocratic form of government. And they were rather reluctant to let the people rule. 
That may seem strange to you when you listen to local politicians today, but when you talk about everybody having a vote and that sort of thing, in the early colonists, women didn't vote, and those that were not landowners, they did not vote. Only those that had property and only a certain elite class were the ones that voted. Now, the reason they would not have a king to rule over them is because they couldn't trust human nature. And that means they couldn't trust each other. Now, we think of those men as being wonderful, political, patriotic saints. Well, they were human beings filled with foibles, and they knew they couldn't trust each other. So they would not put power in the hands of one man. And they were afraid to put it in the people's hands because they had no confidence in the people either. And that sort of destroys the idea that the politician gives you today that when the people speak while you hear the voice of God, that the voice of the people is the voice of God. Well, frankly, that's just not true. What is it, though, that's wrong? Now, people say our form of government. What's wrong? Well, now, I want to say something now, and I hope I'm not misunderstood and I recognize my inability to express it in the way I'd like to express it to you. But that I believe that Paul is saying in this epistle here, that the important thing is not the form of government, but a form of government is important. The important thing is that the character of the men who are holding office that they be a certain caliber and have a certain character. Now, as far as this is concerned, as far as this epistle of 1 Timothy is concerned, and it'll be true in the other two, these men must meet certain requirements, a husband of one wife and that type of thing, and they must be sober and all of that. Now, as essential as that is, and that is argued so much today in local churches, and here's something that I never heard argued in my long years as a pastor, 40 years. And this is what Paul is trying to say to us, and I hope I can get that through. And it's this, that the men who are officers are the ones that must be spiritual men. Because no system will function unless the men are right who are in the place and position of authority. If they are wrong, no system will work. And whether it be congregational or Episcopal or Presbyterian, none of them will work when the men are wrong. And that, my friend, is the problem today. It's the problem today in politics it's the problem in the church. We elect a man. He must be a successful businessman. He should be a man that has leadership ability. And very frankly, I think those are good requirements. But we need to recognize that is he a spiritual man? And the two things that Paul is going to emphasize here, and I'll point that out now so that when we get to it in this epistle and these others, that it will be very clear. They must be men of faith, and they must be men who are motivated by love. And unless those two 
operating in their lives, I don't care how much ability they've got. They can't function in the church. Now, that means simply this, that the authority they have actually is no authority at all. I hope now I'll be able to make this clear to you. What is Paul going to say? Paul's going to say you've been made an officer, an elder, or a bishop, or a deacon in the church. All right? You have an office. Now you feel very pompous. You have authority. Paul says you have no authority. Well, then, what do you mean? I mean simply this, that Christ is the head of the church. And the Holy Spirit is the one to give the leading and the guiding and direction. And the officer is never to assert his will in anything. He is to find out what the will of God is. And that means he'll have to be a man of faith. He'll have to be motivated by love. And my friend, may I say to you, that's the only kind of man that ought to ever be an officer are a minister in a church, a man of faith and motivated by love. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going around and soft-soap everybody and rub their back and try to be a man-pleaser. The thing that he's going to try to do is to carry through the will of Christ in that church and that he is to make it clear that Christ is the head of the church and that his job is to see that Christ is the head of the church. Oh, how I've spent weary hours in board meetings talking about some little thing that has actually nothing to do with the spiritual welfare of the church, but it had a lot to do with the will of some hard-headed, stubborn individual who thought he was a spiritual man, and he had no idea that he wanted to carry through the will of Christ. To begin with, he'd never sought the will of Christ. All he was attempting to do was to assert his will because he thought his will was right. Oh, my friend today, Christ is the head of the local church. And if he's not the head of the local church, and we're going to see that in this first verse, He says here, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the Lord. Remember, that's number one. And the Lord Jesus said in his day, you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not the things I command. A lot of people call him Lord today in the church, and they're not following him at all. My friend, to be an officer in the church means that you're carried through the will of Christ, his commandments, his desire. He is the head of the local church. That's needed today, is it not? And the form of government. Therefore, I've said all of this to say to you that I'm not prepared to argue with anybody about your form of government. If you think yours is the best form, fine. You go along with it. But my friend, it will work if you have the right man. It won't work, and I don't care what form it is, if you have the wrong man in. That's the thing that has stopped the machinery today. That's the monkey wrench in the machinery of the church. 
That's the reason as it gets down here where the shoe leather hits the sidewalk, why we don't see much evidence of Christ. That's the business of the church is to get him through to the world. Now, friends, we come to the first chapter of this very wonderful epistle. And last time I put down an introduction. And my thought in the introduction was that although we are going to deal here with that which is really the nitty-gritty of the local church, it has to do with sweeping the place out and gathering up the song books and the meeting of the deacons and all that sort of thing. But the important thing is that the character of these men and the caliber of these men will be that which will determine whether that church is really a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's important for us to see. And with that in mind, let me just give a brief outline that we have in our notes of this epistle. And we have in chapter 1 the faith of the church. And then in chapter 2, we'll have public prayer and woman's place in the churches. And my friend, that ought to stir up a little interest. And by the way, if you have any friends in women's lib, have them listen for the remainder of this week or the next few times. And I think maybe that we can, I hope we can get them interested. Now in chapter 3, we have officers in the churches, chapter 4, apostasy in the churches, and chapters 5 and 6, duties of officers of the churches. Now, this is the thing that we have before us, and we come back now to chapter 1, and here we have the faith of the church. And actually, I probably ought to call that the faith of the churches. Now, in the first two verses here, we have the introduction, and this introduction is rather remarkable. It's remarkable because it's different than anything that you find in other of Paul's epistles. I'm of the opinion that many of us, by the time we got from Romans through Second Thessalonians, we came to the conclusion that all these epistles had the same introduction. But that's not true. These pastoral epistles are a little different. And as Dr. Vincent says, the salutation as a whole has no parallel in Paul. That is, you won't find this in any of the other epistles. It actually is different. Now we want to see in which way it is different. He calls himself now Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, who is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that's a remarkable two verses of Scripture. Very remarkable. And Paul here again, even with Timothy asserts his apostleship. And somebody says, well, he's certainly done that before. Well, he has. And we find, for instance, in Galatians, that he says that he is an apostle by the will of God. Now, I hope you notice that this is a little different here. 
it's by the commandment of God. And somebody says, what is the difference between commandment and will of God? Well, Paul now is writing to a young preacher. He's his friend. And this epistle, I think, is much more personal, though it has to do with the local church. But it's very personal because it's written to this young minister, this young missionary, shall we say, of the Lord Jesus. And actually, the will of God and the commandment of God are synonymous. And yet, they're not the same. And let me put it like this. All the commandments that you find in the Bible reveal the will of God. And they're not just confined to the Ten Commandments, by the way. They reach out much farther than the Ten Commandments. We are told that it's the will of God for us to pray. You remember, we had that back in First Thessalonians, you will recall, that we are to pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of Christ Jesus concerning you. So that there are many things that are the will of God, and the will of God is expressed in his commandments. But I do not think that you have all of the will of God even in the sum total of the commandments that we have in the Scripture. We have enough to reveal that man is not saved by commandments of God. And I'd like to reiterate that and emphasize that because there are so many today, the law, they say, is essential to our salvation. Now, when we get down to verse 7, I'm going into this in a great deal of detail. We won't get there today, I'm sure. He says there, we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Well, how do you use the commandment? It's good. Well, that's true. And the law, Paul says in Romans, is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. But it's the very fact that the law is good, and it's absolutely good, and demanding absolute goodness from man, in whom there is no good thing. Because Paul says, I know that in me there dwelleth no good thing. And it's because the law is good that the sinner cannot obey it. That's the whole thing about it. It reveals the will of God. And the commandment of God reveals the will of God, so that in order that the sinner might be saved, it was necessary to find a way apart from obedience of a perfect law. And the glory of the gospel is that God found a way that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. And we are told today that we have through this man, that is, the Lord Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Why? Because it was a ministration of death. The law condemned us. The law wasn't given to save us. The law was given to reveal that we are dealing with a holy God and that you and I are not holy. Therefore, God had to find a way to save us. And that way is the way of the cross. That way is the way of the Lord Jesus. 
I am the way, he says, the truth and the life. The law is not the way to God. Christ is the way to God. And that is the important thing. Now, when Paul is saying to this young preacher something here, he says, not the broad statement he gave the Galatians, I'm an apostle by the will of God, which was, of course, true. But Paul is saying now to this young preacher, Timothy, I am an apostle by the commandment of God. He made me an apostle. It's not just because I'm in the will of God today that I'm an apostle. But there was a time when he commanded me to be an apostle. Now, I think Paul was rather reluctant to become an apostle. I'm sure that Paul would offer to the Lord excuses as Moses did. He could well say, well, look, Lord, I wasn't with the other 11 apostles. They were with you for three years, and I never knew you in the days of your flesh. I know you today as the glorified Christ. I'm not worthy to be an apostle. And he says that also. And the Lord Jesus says, I command you. And that's the reason that this man could walk into a synagogue and go before a gainsaying audience in Athens and a group of rotten, corrupt sinners in Corinth and stand before them and declare the gospel. You know why? He was a soldier under orders. He was an apostle by commandment. Not by a commission, but by a commandment. Nobody laid their hands on him and made him an apostle. The Lord Jesus, and that gave him an authority. Now, you remember when we looked at Jeremiah, that we saw that same kind of authority. This man, Jeremiah, he's shrinking like a shrinking violet, retiring all the time, the man with the broken heart. And yet, he could step out and give these strong, strong statements from God. Why? He's under orders. He's a soldier under orders. Now, Paul is making that clear to Timothy. And I think any man that's going to speak for God today needs to speak without authority, or he ought to keep quiet. I think that when a man gets up and says, I think this, and if you believe in a fashion, I expect that maybe you'd be saved if you would believe in a way on Jesus. Well, when you begin to talk like that, then you haven't anything to say for God at all. Now, Paul is this kind of an apostle. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior, now, is God our Savior? He certainly is. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. He's the Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Now, God provided the sacrifice, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that executed it. He is the one that came to this earth. And then you have this strange statement here, he is our hope. And that is a strange expression because that's not used very many times. To tell the truth, you're only going to find that used one other time, and that'll be in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the Lord Jesus died to save you. He lives to keep you saved, and he's going to come someday and take you in order to consummate that salvation. My friend, any way you look at him, if you're going to look backwards, he's our faith. And when we look around us, it's love. But when we look ahead, it's hope, my friend. 
and its hope actually all the way, and it's anchored in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is a little different introduction. Now he says unto Timothy, my own son in the faith. Now, notice that he is called Timothy and he's called Timotheus. And somebody's going to say, well, what difference does that make? Well, actually, it doesn't make too much difference. Only Timotheus is made up of two words, and it means that which is dear to God. And I think we need to see that, that this man was dear to God. He was dear to the apostle Paul, and he was dear to the local churches of that day. What a wonderful picture that we have here. Let me say a word concerning him now. We have Timothy introduced to us, and we've had something to say about him before when we were in the book of Acts. Also, when we were looking at, for instance, the epistle to the Ephesians, then the epistle to the Philippians. Now, his father was a Greek. We'll see that when we get a little farther along. And his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, were Christians before him. He lived in Lystra, and that was where Paul was stoned, and I think raised from the dead, by the way. And I'm not sure but what this had a lot to do with the conversion of young Timothy. He probably is like any other young man, rather skeptical, but I'm sure that convinced him. And he became an avowed follower of Paul after his conversion. And he was a man that had a good reputation, by the way. We're told in Acts 16, beginning at verse 2, "...well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained to the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem." And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. And then, as he followed the apostle Paul, he became one that Paul had utmost confidence in. And Paul had in the churches many that proved false brethren, that deceived him. That's always the tragedy, I think, of every pastor, is the fact that you do have wonderful people, wonderful friends in the church. I tell you, one of the glories of my ministry today is that right here in Pasadena, I began serving here in 1940, and I've been here a long time. And there are people that I meet, oh, just everywhere. We came to the Lord way back in 1940, 41, 42 and they're following in the Lord's steps, and they're loyal, faithful friends. That's one of the reasons we keep our headquarters here. We've got a world of wonderful friends, you see, in this area, people you can trust. And Paul had those that he couldn't trust, but Timothy he could. And in Philippians, the second chapter, verse 19, listen to what he says there. I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus, shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ, 
But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father he hath served with me in the gospel. Him therefore I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord, that I also myself shall come shortly. Now, we find here that Timothy, who you see, is one very close to Paul. And Paul here mentions that. Under Timothy, my own son in the faith. And that could be translated, my true son in the faith, or my genuine son in the faith. Paul had led him to the Lord. Now he says to him, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And somebody says, well, that's just like the introductions we've had before. No, it isn't. I beg to differ with you. And the difference is this. Yes, we've had grace before, and we've had peace mentioned before, and we've spoken on those too. But friends, we've got another word here. That's mercy. Well, what is the mercy of God? Well, actually, mercy is a word that was used back in the Old Testament, and it actually was equivalent to the word grace, because it was the mercy seat back there. And it was the sacrifice that made the throne of God, which is holy and righteous and just, makes it a mercy seat. And when you and I come to God, we don't want justice. What we want is mercy, and we need mercy from God. Now, Mercy is what God has provided for all of his creatures. God's got all the mercy that you need. You can call upon it, but it's just like money in the bank. My friend will do you no good unless you write a check, and you write the check of faith. And believe me, when I write a check, I write it by faith a lot of times because it's not always there. But very frankly, that's what mercy is. God is rich in mercy, we're told. We've seen that one before. He has plenty of it. But when God saves you, he saves you by his grace. Now, God's merciful to you. God's merciful to all these sinners that are in the world today that blaspheme him and repudiate him and turn their back on him. God's merciful to them. He sends rain on the just and unjust. He doesn't play favorites. Even with those of his own sinners today get rich, they prosper, they seem to do better than anybody else. God's merciful to them. But, you see, you'll have to come by faith and write the check of faith. You'll have to come by faith, and then God will save you by his grace. Now, you see, these three words, love and mercy and grace, are a little trinity. Love is that in God which existed before he would care to exercise mercy or grace. God was love. That's his nature. It's his attribute. Now, mercy is that in God which provided for the need of sinful man. And grace is that also in him which acts freely to save because all the demands of holiness has been satisfied. So that God, because he's merciful, you can come to him and by his grace, he'll save you. You don't have to bring anything. In fact, you bring nothing because Anything you bring is filthy rags. Now, I've read several letters from people who criticize me for talking about do-gooders. Now, my friend, a do-gooder is one that thinks he does not need the mercy of God. He feels that his own good works will save him. 
I had a man years ago right up here in Altadena and here in Pasadena. He said to me, and he was on his deathbed. He said to me, he says, Preacher, you don't need to talk to me about that I need Christ as a Savior and that I need the mercy and the grace of God. I don't need it. I'm willing to stand before him just like I am. You see, and you know what he told me? He told me what all he did. He'd been chairman or president, I think, of the community chest, and he had headed up, and he was head of an orphan's home at one time or chairman of the board. Oh, he was a do-gooder. And he's going to stand before God on that. My friend, let me say to you, do good salvation won't do you any good when you really need it. The salvation that God provides for you will enable you to do good, the kind of good that is acceptable to God, because even the righteousness of man is filthy rags in his sight. Now, the salutation here that Paul put down, the salutation is different from any that Paul had written heretofore. That is, there are none that you find back in the other epistles quite like it. And you're going to find through this epistle and these pastoral epistles, First, Second Timothy and Titus, expressions that Paul does not use anywhere else. He obviously talked to these young preachers and those that were intimate with him in a way in which probably he did not always speak publicly. Wouldn't you love to have been Timothy, to have traveled with Paul, have this great apostle open his mind and his heart to you, talk to you in such an intimate way? Well, he's talking to you and me. That is, Paul's not. He's gone. But the Spirit of God is here and it's actually God that's talking to us today through this epistle that Paul wrote to a young preacher. These expressions that we find here and the great truth that's here is just something for you and me today. It's quite intimate. It's very personal. And yet, being personal, it has to do with the local church. It has to do with the body of believers as it manifests itself in the community. And that's the way the church should manifest itself. And I believe, therefore, that every believer should be identified with some church. Now, someone is going to say, that's the pastor that's in you. I think maybe you're right. That's true. Now, last time we got through this brief salutation, I had to hurry at the end where it says, "...grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father." and Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, he says that Timothy here is his own son in the faith, but God is our father, Paul's father, and he's Timothy's father, and he's your father if you've received Christ. And he's my father because I have received Christ. And I've been brought into the family of God and now, what a privilege it is. And you must remember, Paul had been a Pharisee. And in Judaism, he'd never had the privilege of calling God his Father. And Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, that is something we may bypass. That is something that, as we said last time, is so needful today that anyone in the church, any function you have in the church, Anything that you do in the local church, you are to do it 
not only in the name of Christ, but you're to do it at his command. Remember, he is the head of the church. He's the Lord. And he made the statement. He said, you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say. You don't obey me. I wonder if he might not say that to many of us today. We just don't call him Lord. He says many in that day are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, that, and the other thing? We were busy as termites for you. And he's going to say, well, I don't even know you. I didn't know you were doing that in my name. You certainly didn't go about it that way. You didn't seek my will. You didn't seek to obey me. Oh, this is very personal, you see. Now we come down, beginning here at verse 3, warning against unsound doctrine. And doctrine's very important. We said in this epistle that it's creed and conduct. And your creed must be right before your conduct can be right. You can't think wrong and act right. That's almost an impossibility. I sometimes get back of a driver, and ladies, forgive me for saying this, but a man said to me, well, a long time ago, he said to me that when a woman who's driving puts out her hand at a crossing, what does that mean? Well, I said, I don't know. Well, he says it just means one thing. The window's down. That's all. You don't know because sometimes she signals she's going to turn left and she turns right and the other way. And the interesting thing is that men do the same thing. But when you do that, your thinking and your acting will cause a great deal of difficulty. But you cannot keep on in this life thinking wrong and act right. So now he says here in verse 3, "...as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia." that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, teach no other doctrine actually should be that they do not teach a different doctrine. And as Paul said to the Galatians, you remember, he said that there is actually no other gospel. These Judaizers are preaching another gospel, but he says actually there's no other gospel. There's only one, and doctrine is the same way. Now, I assume that doctrine here, and the word, by the way, means the teaching of the church. And what is the teaching of the local church? What should it be? Well, it should be what it was at the very beginning in the day of Pentecost. It says, they continued in the apostles' doctrine. In fact, there were four things that characterized that church. The apostles' doctrine, and in fellowship, and prayers, and in breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. Those were the four fingerprints of the visible church, and I think they are today. A church is not a church if its doctrine is not the apostles' doctrine. Now, our interpretation, I recognize that many of us disagree, but as a very fine, outstanding Pentecostal preacher here in Southern California said to me, and he's an outstanding man. I have had lunch with him. We've talked over what we agree on and what we disagree on, and it's not as severe as some of you seem to think. But he said to me, he says, Dr. McGee, we agree on so much, 
And we agree on that which is basic. Therefore, we ought not to fall out on things that actually are not the essential things. And I agree with that, by the way. My feeling is today that I'm sorry that everybody doesn't believe like I do, but they don't. But basic, there are certain basic truths, and that would be the apostles' doctrine, their understanding of the Word of God. They taught plenary, verbal, inspiration of the Scripture, the integrity, the inerrancy of the Word of God. They taught the deity of Christ. And by the way, we're going to see that Paul, in this epistle here, has an exalted view of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those that say he never taught the deity of Christ. Well, of all things, that's the one thing that Paul's as clear on as the noonday sun. He's clear on the deity of the Lord Jesus. And what do you think he meant when he said, "...and grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord." He's certainly putting him right along by the side of God our Father, and he's making him God there. But we'll see that again and again in this epistle and these pastoral epistles. Now, he's saying here, and he's talking to this young man, Timothy, he says, I've left you in Ephesus. Ephesus was a very important center. Paul spent more time there than any other place, had his greatest ministry there. And he said, I want you, young Timothy, to stay there in Ephesus, and I'll be in Macedonia, and they sure needed straightening out up there, that thou mightst charge some that they teach not a different doctrine. That was the important thing. The teaching of the church must be right. If it's not right, then it's not a church. And I don't care how many deacons and elders and ministers and song leaders and choirs and Sunday school you have. If the doctrine is not there, it's not a church. That they teach no doctrine that's different. Now, that's the thing that he's saying here. Now he says, neither give heed to fables, and actually do not give heed to myths. And in Ephesus, it was the heartland of the mystery religions of that day. In that great center, why you find temples that, Hadrian, temples to Trajan, that great temple of Diana, the Ephesians, all of that centered in Ephesus and the mystery religions that were there. Now, Paul says they are built on myths, the mythology of the Greeks. Neither give heed to the myths and endless genealogies. Now, that's a very interesting expression that he uses there. And that could refer either to the philosophy of Philo, Philo was an outstanding, brilliant Israelite who took the Old Testament and spiritualized it. He attempted to introduce the myth viewpoint, and we have that today. In the average denominational, of the old line denominational seminaries today, they tell you that, for instance, the book of Genesis is a myth. That is, all the stories there are myths that these men didn't live and that sort of thing. There's been such an accumulation today 
of archaeology and all of these other things that I notice that that's not being emphasized as it was back in my day. But nevertheless, there are those that believe that, and just endless genealogies, they just deal with this type of thing, and they make the church just a continuation of Judaism. It's just one genealogy after another, and not different dispensations. And so it could refer to that. And also, the Greeks were teaching what is known as the demiurge, the eons, if you please. And actually, that was in the first heresy of the church, Gnosticism. For instance, there were certain emanations that came from a divine center. And the original created creature, and the creature created another creature that was below him, and another below him, and below him, and below him, and on down the line. And in that line, you can put Jesus as one of them. And that was the way that they were attempting to go. And now Paul tells him, neither give heed to these myths or these endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. In other words, all of that type of thing won't build you up in the faith. And if you'll notice that liberal churches, I think we're seeing a great deal of fruit today of unbelief that's been in the church. It's produced a hardcore group of almost heartless individuals. They lack faith, absolutely. They reject the Word of God. And some of the things that are happening today in liberalism is absolutely unbelievable. Now, he goes on to say, Now the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Now, if what is taught in the church does not produce love out of a pure heart, these are expressions that Paul could use intimately with this young preacher, you see. And he never used this in writing his epistle to churches. And here, what is a pure heart? Well, it's in contrast to the old nature that we've got. It means a person that's been made righteous and now can manifest the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. And the two things, therefore, that should be manifest in the church is faith. Faith in God. Faith in the Word of God. Faith in each other. And in many churches today, it's difficult to trust certain individuals. I could tell you stories that make your hair curl friends about some churches. Thank God we've got some wonderful churches, but there's some you better be careful of them. And I won't go into detail because I tell you, it seems unbelievable. And there should be faith and there should be love. Now, love is just not something you mouth all the time, especially something that's mouthed continually in the pulpit. Love today is a concern for others. And a concern for others is, means you won't gossip about them, means you're not going to hurt them, you're not going to harm them. I know one church that's attempted to wreck the ministry of a pastor. They've done everything they can. 
And the one thing they haven't been able to do is say he didn't teach the Word of God. Well, he did teach the Word of God, and yet they're attempting to do that. Then they talk about love. My friend, how hypocritical that can be. You see, this is not something you talk about. This is something you manifest. Faith should be lived out, and love should be lived out. Now, it's in that organization that you're to have deacons and have an organization. And whether you've got an Episcopal form of government or congregational or Presbyterian, what difference does that make? If these things are lacking, faith and love, well, you just well make it a lodge. You well make it a religious club. But if these things are manifest, then actually... Your form of church government isn't really too important. And I think that's the thing that Paul is going to emphasize here. Now, he goes on to say that the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Three things here, love, a good conscience, and faith unfeigned. I do not believe that conscience is a guide even for a believer today, but A believer ought to have a good conscience. When you lie down at night, do you feel badly about something you've said or done? Many sensitive Christians are like that. I had a call the other day from a party that was weeping and said, I said something and I hope you'll forgive me. Well, I didn't know they'd said it, by the way, but apparently they hadn't been able to sleep that night. They have a very sensitive conscience. Now, some have conscience that's been seared with a hot iron. But these three wonderful graces, love, a good conscience, and faith, they are the things that are to be manifested in the local church. From which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. And that means just empty chatter. It's all talk. Beautiful words. Flowery language. They butter you up. They pat you on the back. Vain jangling, empty chatter means nothing. Verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say or that about which they affirm. And Paul's laying it on the line here. I would say he's making it very clear that they teach error and they do it with assurance. They pay no attention to the Word of God, but they're teaching error with a great deal of assurance. This is a very important section, you see. And when we begin to dig down underneath and listen to this great apostle talking to his young son in the faith, he talks in a way that maybe he hasn't talked before. And it's well for us to listen in today, for it's for us too in this day in which we live. Now, we must move along now, but this is a very important section that we are in. First Timothy, the first chapter at verse 8. And this is the section, the warning against unsound doctrine. And the problem was that there was an attempt to get Christians involved in the heathen religions of that day. And there were many of them, the mystery religions, the idolatry. It abounded in Ephesus where young Timothy was. And Paul knew that area, for he had been there. And also there was the idea of making actually of the Old Testament a myth 
and also to treat it as just endless genealogies, and they run right on into the New Testament, that there was no great change that took place actually when Christ came, and that Israel in the Old Testament is the church, and the church in the New Testament is Israel, and so on. That type of thinking. Paul warns against it, and then he warns against those that are legalists, that were attempting to teach the law. And they taught the law as a means of salvation, and that didn't end it, but they taught the law as a means of sanctification. The thing that you were required to do was to get back under the law after you're saved. May I say to you that the law served a purpose, but it never was a means of salvation. Never was given for that as a ministration of death for the simple reason it condemns us, a ministration of condemnation. The law was never given, therefore, to save man. It was to reveal to man that he was a sinner and needed a Savior. Actually, under the law, the best man in the world was absolutely condemned. While the gospel today, the worst man in the world can be justified if he only believes in Christ. The sinner cannot be saved by good works, for he's unable to perform any good works. Being in the flesh, Paul says, he cannot please God. And I think that we need to bear down on that, because this idea today that you are in and of yourself able to please God, my friend, is absolutely contradicted in the Word of God. For he says that it's impossible... Those that are in the flesh, Paul says in Romans 8, 8, they cannot please God. It's impossible to please Him. You can't meet His standard. Therefore, good works cannot produce salvation. But salvation can produce good works. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved under good works. And Paul makes it very clear how we are saved in Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, under good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in him. Now, beginning with verse 8 of chapter 1 now of 1 Timothy, Paul says, but we know that the law is good. It certainly is, as we've said, reveals the will of God. It's morally excellent. It's good for moral conduct, but not for salvation. The law cannot save a sinner. It can correct a sinner. It can reveal to us that we are sinners, and it serves its purpose. That was its purpose to show that. Now, it was never given to a righteous man, and that means one that's been made righteous for his faith in Christ, because he's been called now to a much higher plane before God, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, 
for manslayers. Now, the law is therefore not made for a righteous man, one that's been justified before God. But why is the law given? Why, it's given for the lawless. Thou shalt not kill. That's not given to a child of God who's not murdering anyone, who does not want to hurt but wants to help. That's given to that man yonder that is a murderer at heart. It's given to control a natural man. And that is the purpose of it. It was for fornicators, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. You see, you and I, when we come to Christ, we now are saved on a different principle by the grace of God. Now we've been brought into the family of God, and we've been brought to a higher plane to live altogether. Let me give two illustrations of this that I trust might be helpful. Here is a judge on a bench, and it's brought before him a lawbreaker. And you can pick any law that you want that he's broken. Now he should be sentenced. He should pay a heavy fine, and he should go to prison. Now the judge says, I have a son that loves this prisoner. I have to condemn him. He's broken the law. Now my son has agreed to pay the fine. He's a wealthy man. He's agreed to go to prison on behalf of this man. Therefore, the penalty has been paid. And I'm going to take this criminal into my home. And I'm going to treat him as a son of mine. And so he takes that criminal home with him. Now, he doesn't talk to him anymore about thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. He's his son. He's going to talk to him now about how he's to love the members of the family. He's going to talk to him now about how he's to act at the family, how he's to come to the table, how he's to obey the judge's wife, how he is to have part in the family chores and the family duties. You see, he's on an altogether different basis than he ever was before. That's what God has done for the sinner. We're not under law, therefore, but we're beyond that, above that. That loss for that fellow out yonder, that is the lawbreaker, was given at the beginning to control the old nature, the flesh. Now, let me give another one, I think, that reveals this, that should be in the family of God, a family of God where there is faith and love and a good conscience, as we saw last time. This is an illustration that I heard Dr. Ironside give many years ago. Dr. Ironside taught up at the Indian conference up at Flagstaff. For about 15 years straight, I went up there, and they've invited me every year since then, and I just haven't been able to accept. I've got a bad conscience on that, I tell you, because I'd love to go up there. At one time, when they had the 50th anniversary, I was up there with Dr. Theodore F. He was born out there on the reservation among the Hopis. His father was a missionary there. And he was one of the speakers, and Dr. Carl Armadink and myself. And we had a wonderful week there speaking to 
the Indians, as well as others that had come from all over the country, they told us there were members of 35 different Indian tribes that were represented there. Well, one time, Dr. Ironside took with him one of the Indians who had become a Christian up to Oakland, California. Now, they got on the Santa Fe train there in Flagstaff. Then when they got to Barstow in California, they changed trains. They got off the train that was going into Los Angeles and waited in the station. And they waited two or three hours, then got on the train and went to Oakland. Now, while they went to Oakland, this Indian gave his testimony. They were staying in the home of some very dear friends of Dr. Ironside. And so this Indian was invited, among other things, to speak to a young people's group. And this young people's group all got hung up that night on law and grace, as they generally do. And they couldn't distinguish between the two or the place of the law. And so this Indian asked if he could get up and say something. And he got up and said something like this. He said, I see that you white folk here are all mixed up on law and grace. He said, I'd like to tell you a little story. He said, I came here from Flagstaff, Arizona, on the train. We stop at Barstow, and we are in the waiting room, and we are waiting there, and I noticed on the walls there, on all of the walls, there's a sign, do not spit on the floor. And it was on the inside, it was on the outside. He said, that was the rule there. And he said, I looked down on the floor, and he said, it looked like everybody spit on the floor. Nobody paid any attention to the law. And then he says, we get here to Oakland, and we go to this nice, lovely home. And they tell me to sit down in the living room. And I sit down in the living room. And while I'm waiting for them to come, I look around, and I see pretty pictures on the wall, but there's no sign there that says, do not spit on the floor. And he says, I get down on my hands and knees and feel of the rug. And he says, you know, nobody spits on the floor. He says, it was law at Boston. It's grace in the home in which I'm staying. That's the difference, friends. That's the real difference. Under law, man never kept it. He can't measure up to it. He breaks it. But now he's been brought by grace into the family of God. <laughs> and he's not going out and murder. He's a son of God now. And he ought not to lie. But when he does, he's out of fellowship with God, that's for sure. But anyway, that's the illustration. Now, he says, these things are contrary to sound doctrine, therefore, to put man back under law. Because the child of God is in a family where the emphasis should be upon love, upon faith, and a good conscience. Now, he says, this is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. I want to change that a little. And this, by the way, is one of the unique statements of Paul. You don't find it in his epistles to the churches, but you do find it writing to these young preachers. According to the gospel of glory. Isn't that a wonderful way of speaking of it? The gospel of glory, 
of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now, Paul becomes very personal here at this particular point at verse 12. He says here, He counted me faithful, and if you'll notice this, putting me in the ministry, and will you notice that? I'm reading now verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. You notice how he's emphasizing the Lordship of Christ. That's for the believer. That's in the local church. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me in that he accounted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now, I don't want to labor a lot of these points here, but I feel like this is rather important. The word ministry is a word that actually is greatly misunderstood today. All believers are in the ministry. In fact, the matter is that none of us are out of the ministry if we are a child of God. In other words, every believer has a ministry. And the word that is used here is the word that's used for the word deacon. And it, by the way, is a very wonderful word that we have. And he says here, I thank God that he's counted me faithful and put me into service. Now, all of us are ministers. Every believer is a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is, Paul called rulers ministers. They're ministers of God, if you please. Because, actually, we talk about we voted for a certain man and the people put him into office. And I tell you, I think God overrules many times mankind down here. That man, I don't care who he is, he's a minister of God. And that's the way that his office is to function or should function. But whether it does or not is beside the point here. The point I'm trying to make is that you are a minister and you've been given a service to perform. Now, Paul was thanking God that he had put him in a service, which was a missionary, of course. He says, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy. And I want you to notice this. Paul takes this awful word of a blasphemer, and he says that's what he was. And very frankly, this man here had blasphemed the Lord Jesus. He hated him, and he had committed what would otherwise have been an unpardonable sin. I think he was present there at the crucifixion of Christ. I think he ridiculed the Lord Jesus. Now, he says here, before I was a blasphemer, and I was a persecutor, and I injured the church, now, will you notice, I obtain mercy. When Paul's talking about his salvation, he's saved by the grace of God. But it was the mercy of God that put him into the ministry. And that's the reason that I constantly tell you that I have to have a whole lot of the mercy of God. I've never really figured out why the Lord would ever use me in the ministry in this type of service of giving out the Word of God. If you had said to me when I was a 
young, smart-alecky bank clerk that I'd be doing this. I would have said, you're absurd to begin with. I don't want to do it. In the second place, I have nothing that would commend me to that. But you see, God, by his mercy, friends, he puts us in the service. He has to be very merciful to me. I've used up a whole lot of his mercy, but he said that he's rich in mercy. So I use quite a bit of his mercy, by the way. Now I must move on. But Paul said he did it ignorantly, and he did it because of the fact he was in unbelief. And that was the condition of most of us, and all of us, I'm sure. And he says, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, the grace of God had saved him, brought him to the place of faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. These are the things that are to be manifest. Now, he says, this is a faithful saying, and it's worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that is a very important verse of Scripture, that he came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come in as the greatest teacher. He was that. He didn't come in to set an example. He did that. But he came into the world to save sinners. And when you give a testimony, make sure you tell the folk not how wonderful you are today and uh, all of your accomplishments. You tell them that you were a sinner and that Christ saved you. That's the important thing. Of whom, he says, I'm chief. I've been over this before. I just touch it briefly. Paul, when he said he was the chiefest of sinners, he's not using hyperbole. He is not using high-flung oratory. What he's saying is the truth. He was the chief of sinners. He blasphemed the Lord Jesus. He shot out the lip there at him. And I think he was present at the crucifixion. You can't sink any lower than that. Paul says, I've been saved. Now, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, you say, I just don't think he can save me. I'm the worst. No, you're not. Paul's the chief of sinners. And the chief of sinners has already got saved. So you will be able to be saved if you want to be. That problem is always with you, you see. You can be saved if you want to be. All you have to do is turn to Christ He'll do the rest. He's faithful. It's a faithful saying. Now, nevertheless, for this cause I obtain mercy. You see, he needed mercy in order to become a minister, be a missionary. That in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them who should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul said, I'm not only preach a gospel, I'm an example of it. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Paul just couldn't go any farther without just sounding out a tremendous doxology. Who is the King eternal? It's the Lord Jesus. Who is he? He's the only wise God. Don't tell me that Paul didn't make the Lord Jesus Christ God. He considered him God, 
manifest in the flesh. And here he gives this tremendous testimony. Now, verse 18, and this is a new section in this chapter. Here you have Paul's charge to Timothy, and it's his personal charge to him. And as we have said several times now, that this letter is a personal letter of Paul to young Timothy, although he is talking about the local church and what he's to do in it, how he's to behave himself and his responsibility. It's very practical. And yet it reveals something of that wonderful relationship that must have existed between Paul the apostle and young Timothy as well as young Titus, as we'll see later. And also, there must have been many other personal friends of Paul. And wouldn't you like to have been a friend of Paul's? Well, he says to him here in this personal charge, verse 18, "...this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy." It's his spiritual son. Paul had led him to the Lord, "...according to the prophecies." which pointed to thee. Now, Paul is saying something here that he didn't discuss too much with others, or with the church at large, that actually Paul felt led definitely to take this young man, Timothy, along with him. Paul had a spiritual discernment, and God apparently directly led him to take this young man and bring him into the position that he apparently occupied in the early church. These prophecies which pointed to thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. And when you go into war, and this is something that our nation has just learned the past few years, you ought never to fight a war unless your heart's in it, unless you're fighting for a real cause, unless you intend to get a victory and Paul says here, I want you to fight that thou mightest war a good warfare. You've got a real enemy. And he had already talked to the Ephesians about that enemy. And Timothy knew about that enemy. It's a spiritual warfare. And now he says, I want you to fight a good fight. Because some were not fighting a good fight. Some were making shipwreck of the faith. Listen to him. Verse 19 holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, they've made shipwreck. And I take it here that you have a tremendous truth. And it has to do with, I think, our intricate personalities. I get a little weary today of those that want to make the gospel so simple that it's sort of like turning, well, it's turning a green light on and then a red light comes on, and that's about all it is. When the green light's on, you walk. When the red light's on, you don't walk. And it's that simple. It's not quite that simple. And what he's saying here is this. There is a danger of you and me in our inconsistency and our failures. And I take it that you are not living in some ivory tower somewhere. And some Christians are today. They feel they are way up above the smog of the landscape, and they're way up yonder. Well, those of us today that are walking the sidewalks of our cities and living here and rubbing shoulders with rough humanity today and the problems of this world, we find out that 
There's inconsistency in our lives. There's failure in our lives. Now, what is the danger? The danger at a time like that is that you and I accommodate our faith to our failure. And you hear so many people say this today. A man came home from the mission field, and he got a job doing something. He told me, he said, the Lord led me to do this. Well, I said, you were trained for about nine years to go as a missionary. And now the Lord's led you back off the field to do something that actually wasn't very important. And I said, do you really feel that that's the way the Lord leads? Oh, yes, he said. He was confident that the Lord had led him. Now, he mouths that so much, and he still mouths it, that I'm of the opinion that he has now accommodated his faith to his failure. May I say, that's the grave danger. My friend, when you and I fail, when there's that inconsistency in our lives, we ought to go to him. Let him know we've fallen short. We haven't measured up. And after all, we're going to see in this next chapter, he's a wonderful mediator between God and man. We're going to talk about that now in a few moments. Let me move on down here in verse 20. He now cites examples of apostates in that day, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, these two men are going to be before us again. Paul didn't have very much good to say about them, either one of them. He'll say, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. I'd hate to be old Alexander and harm the apostle Paul. And I'd hate to be Hymenaeus. They both are together. And then the thing I'm concerned about here is, Paul says, "...whom I have delivered unto Satan." Now, here is something that I'd like for you to note, because I believe that this is important. What we have here is actually failure on the part of these men, and they are apostates. And Paul now does something that I think that it's very important for us to see what he's doing here. He's exercising a ministry that I take it that only an apostle could exercise. And that ministry, if you please, is a ministry of, he says, I delivered him, and if you'll note that, I've delivered him to Satan. Now, that is not the way I see it. That's not some church court that's dealing with him. In other words, it's not ecclesiastical discipline, and certainly it's not what is called excommunication today. But it's the apostles exercising his prerogative and position as an apostle. And he hands this man over to Satan. Now, this is not the first time that we've heard of this. In 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, you remember there, he says, writing to the Corinthians, "...for I, as absent in body and present in spirit, have already judged as present as to him that so wrought this thing in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver him, being such a one to Satan for destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." 
Now, I take it this is an authority that the apostles had that we don't have today, and I do not think the church has it today. What right have you and I or any church today to deliver any man over to Satan? But these men did, and Peter exercised that. And I imagine if Ananias and Sapphira were here right now, they'd be able to tell you a little something about Simon Peter's authority as an apostle. Now, may I say to you that that's the thing that's important for us to note here.